I can't code for the life of me. If you put me in front of a website and I had to code a page, after 10 minutes, I'm going to have a headache. But drawing pixels and doing this kind of work, I could do it all day and I would be the happiest person on the planet. So I don't know, like over time, I figured out that this kind of working process, even though it's not necessarily the most efficient, even though it doesn't necessarily always make sense, I could code it or I could do it differently. The way I do it, I thoroughly enjoy it. That was artist Nicholas Sassoon. I'm just going to come out and say it right away. I am a huge fan and collector of Nicholas's work. It's likely the old school 1990s computer geek in me, but I just find this deep nostalgia in the pixelated and early computer graphics feel that is put into his work. This is very much an episode where you're going to want to pull up the show notes, head on over to proof.xyz, and there you'll get all the links to the various artworks that we talk about during the show, so you can just follow along. Now, Nicholas's work has long been concerned with the tensions between the pixel and the physical screen, reflecting on their entanglement and materiality by integrating pixelated figures, moray patterns, and early computer graphics into experimental displays. So while Nicholas does produce standalone NFTs, he also has beautiful physical sculptures, and in these sculptures are digital displays that will play his digital artwork as well. Now, on the NFT side, he offers artwork on Foundation, Super Rare, and Hen. Some of his one-of-ones on Super Rare have recently sold for 5 to 7 ETH, or around 20 to 30,000 US dollars. But he also has larger editions available on Hen. One recent edition of 2,180 can be purchased for under one Tez, so you can call it 6 to 7 US dollars with gas, making it very approachable for the new collector, which is just awesome. All right, let's talk to him. This is Nicholas Sassoon. Nicholas, man, so great for you to join me. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, it's this is such a crazy world because I'm so used to interacting with folks on Discord and Twitter, and then to actually actually hear someone's voice is awesome, you know. And then I was just at Marfa, Texas recently, and we did the Art Blocks meetup and meeting everyone, all these artists that you know and respect face-to-face is is awesome. I'm, I'm bummed you didn't make it out for that. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you how that went. It looked like a really, a really cool and really meaningful event. It felt very special. It was like the launch of the Artblocks official kind of gallery house headquarters. And they had a bunch of fantastic artists, some great panel discussions, like a classic, like, backyard kind of barbecue Texas style in the back and there's some bar meetups and just hang it felt like very early South by Southwest days which is a, you know a, a pretty popular conference in Austin Texas and so you felt like the beginning is something pretty big which is which is cool but I hope to meet in, in person at some point hopefully COVID permitting yeah um, for sure that'd be amazing I mean we're both on the Pacific Northwest so yeah not very far yeah, it's actually funny. So you're in Vancouver, correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm originally from France, and I moved in Vancouver in 2008. So it's been 13 years that I'm here. I will be up there early part of next year. So we should we should definitely hang then. Oh yeah. But but yeah, for the, those that don't know you via my retweets and of your work, which is <laughs> awesome. <laughs> let's get into your background and kind of what got you started in the whole crazy world of NFTs and you have such a very specific vibe in the in the whole kind of like that really resonates with me being someone that was back into like the old school days of bolt board systems and all the cr- old tech because I am so old. Right. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about like your, your kind of like world. How did you get started in the art world? How did I get started in the art world? Well, I, I went to art school from like 2001 to 2007. Prior to that, I was always doing some paintings and drawings. And I guess after I passed my baccalaureate, which is like the big exam in France when you're like 18, I was like, I really don't know what I want to do aside from painting and drawing. So I went to art school. And seven years into art school, I kept doing painting and a lot of other things, but it's really when I moved to Vancouver in 2008 that I started really exploring early computer graphics. I sort of, I sort of really stopped what I was doing 
in art school, I was doing a lot of video art and a lot of different sort of works with like a very different visual language than what I'm doing now. And I moved to Vancouver and I just had my laptop. I didn't really know a lot of people here. So the the funny thing is like, I kind of gave up on art and I was like, I really want to explore, I really want to explore early computer graphics. I really want to take the time to like explore this imagery, to learn about it, to experiment with it without thinking too much about where it's going to lead me without really knowing where it's going to lead me. So that's when it all started in 2008. So it's been, yeah, like the, the work I make today that you see on social medias or on my website is really, like really began in 2008, 2009. Mm. And when you say early computer graphics... When someone starts to explore that, it's kind of funny because, you know, you, you know, I've been chatting on Discord about the tools you use and whatnot. And I've been also fascinated with this because I remember, I, I, I've never shared this with you, but I studied computer animation in school and I was using old Amigas and then video toaster machines. And I was using a software called Lightwave 3D and a bunch of other stuff. And I think about those tools being just, it must be so much fun. And I haven't yet to do this, but I want to do this. Go and buy like an old PC off of eBay, get some like shareware CD-ROMs and like fire up a bunch of the old software and just use that as a way to kind of like time and tool bound your creative process and say, what can I do with these old tools? Is that some of the things you started to do? Or what do you mean when you say explore the old, old, old ways? Well, I guess I, I'm kind of cheating. I don't really use old machines and old softwares. When I, when I started exploring early computer graphics, I'm really talking about a type of imagery from the mid eighties to like the mid early nineties. So really a time where home computers and video game console become like really, really mass distributed and available to everybody. But the, the chipset of computers are still very weak and images can't really be displayed with a lot of visual information. So everything is pixelated. There's a lot of pixel patterns to try and represent shades of gray or different gradients and color palettes are limited to like 8, 16, 24, uh, 256 colors. So in back in 2008, 2009, I, I really wanted to explore that type of imagery more because it had been like a very important part of my upbringing. But my tools were like the Adobe Creative Suites and just like regular mainstream tools. And so a big part of my process was to figure out how to reproduce this kind of imagery through available tools. It's even harder in some ways, right? <laughs> like it was, in some sense, it would be easier to go buy the old hardware and, and use the tools that created that aesthetic. But now you're saying, I'm going to use modern tools to, to kind of go back and create a more retro type vibe. Totally. It's like a really crooked way to go about it because I could have gone the code route, but I'm like literally the worst coder on the planet. Uh, I can't code for the life of me. I've tried, but it's not, it's not for me. And so I kind of try to do with what I had available. And I mean, the, the thing that's really interesting about these graphics though is that when you look at images from like the first Photoshop or when you look at images from Apple Macintosh or the first IBM PCs, this type of graphics are very easily reproducible with modern tools because they're almost kind of like the backbone of graphic tools that we use today. It's just that people don't really think to use them that way. So in a way, like when I use Photoshop or when I use the tools I use, I, I make use of like 0.1% of the functionalities of the software, mm. but I have such like a very focused and specific and sort of like, I guess like unique working process with these tools that it, it leads to this kind of results visually. What would you classify if, if you can... Is there a genre of art that you would classify yourself as falling into? Is it is it retro? Is it pixel art? Like what what do you think? How do you frame that? I mean, I usually introduce myself as a visual artist because I I feel like I work across multiple fields. For the last ten years, my career was really focused on contemporary arts. So all these early computer graphics that are sort of like the the major inspiration of my work and the, the visual language that I use in my work then gets used for a lot of different things. And I 
I make a lot of animations, but I also make a lot of prints, make a lot of sculptures. Sometimes I collaborate with fashion designers on different sort of prints and patterns for textiles. I did a lot of installations, a lot of curations for music festivals. So I relate to these categories like retro pixel art, or like people say, talk a lot about nostalgia. And I think like all these things are, are contained within the work. Um, I, I haven't really come up with like a good category because I feel like if I put myself in a category, then it's like, well, everything I do needs to fit that category. Mm, good point. But at the same time, I'm very comfortable when people are like, oh, like your work is so retro. Oh, your work is like really like pixel, whatever, vintage or nostalgic. It's like, well, I get it because everybody has like a different emotional response to a work and it's not my place to tell people, no, you shouldn't have that response or you shouldn't think that way about my work. It's like, once the work is out there, it's like everybody can make whatever they want out of it. Yeah, it's it's so awesome. I, it, I was in preparing for this interview and pulling up all of your different projects and I must have like 10 tabs open right now as we're speaking. <laughs> it was really hard for me to decide which projects do we talk about because you are so good at, I mean, I mean, even your, I just love some of the actual physical stuff you've done with like the rock, with the display coming out of it. I guess you call it the profits. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank so you. Some more of the sculpture stuff. This, just so people are listening, I'm going to have a, a whole treasure trove of show note links. So you'll definitely want to kind of follow along as you hear us talking about these because it, it, it obviously audio doesn't do it justice. The, the, the profits, can we talk about that one briefly? Because that, that is more of a physical piece or pieces. Mm-hmm. What, what was your thinking there? Yeah, so the, the profits is a project I started in 2019. And so, as you said, it's a series of sculptures that are centered around these sort of lava rocks that are pumice rocks. And then you, you have the lava rocks sitting on this sort of display and there's a screen with like a long neck coming out of the rock that almost can look like a human or humanoid figure or like some sort of figure or can look like something that's more vegetal or like a gross. It mm-hmm. depends on like how how people see or interpret the shape. I guess my main, my starting point for that project was to try and give these rocks a sort of intent, almost as if they were like haunted or inhabited mm-hmm. by some sort of activity or like spiritual activity or some sort of expression. Mm-hmm. And I wanted the the technology, like the screen and all the cables to become this sort of interface by which you see the contained in the rocks. It's it almost, almost the, Yeah, that's how that's exactly the sense that I got. It's almost like you were tapping into the brain of the rock. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's a very good way to like summarize what I was trying to do. And I guess like the the influence or like the inspiration from that came from a lot of different things. I, I think when you work a lot with digital, your relationship with like materiality becomes a little bit different. And I've always been, I've always been fascinated by by rocks, or like collecting rocks, like mineral specimens or geological specimens. And one thing I've always been fascinated with and interested interested in is like volcanic cycles and volcanic eruption, because volcanoes are sort of like this cycle of creation. And destruction, when when you have a volcanic eruption, it sort of, it destroys a lot of things, but it's also like at the origin of life in like many, many different ways and many different steps of like the history of the earth. And so that's something I wanted to try and tap into with that project and, and sort of use technology as a way to mediate that, to mediate this sort of, uh, this sort of experience of geology, this experience of volcanic activity. And so when you look at the sculptures, you have this lava rock and then you have this screen that almost like stares at you. And and the screen is showing this sort of animation of pulsating lava that's like very, very soothing and very calm, but also, I guess, like a little bit ominous, depending on how you look at it. And yeah, it's almost as if like, you know, this, this cycles and this activity that generated the lava rock was still kind of contained within the rock and expressing itself. It's so beautiful. Is is a really cool. Did you sell these at a gallery or how did you end up? How many did you make in total? Oof, I made a, a bunch. I think I made like 
12 or 15. So some of them look a little bit like bonsai. I, that's or, what I was just going to say. The bonsai one, it looks so cool. The one I'm looking you. at right now. It looks like it has like a lamp hanging off of the bonsai piece. Yeah, it's like a lantern almost because there's four screens. So when you look around, like when you sort of like walk around the sculptures, there's always a, a screen facing you and it almost looks like a little lantern or a lamp. I made, I made a few, I made like three or four different ones that kind of look like the trees. So you have the lava rock, you have the tree, like a branch coming out of the lava rock. And then you have this sort of lantern hanging off the, of the tree branch. Actually, that tree branch is actually a type of tree from the West Coast called uh, Manzanita. I don't know if it's Manzanita wood. It's a really interesting wood. It's like a short, it's like a type of shrub or like a a small type of tree that grows all over the West Coast, on the coast. It doesn't grow inland. It only grows Mm. by the ocean. And the funny thing about this tree is that it has this seed and the seeds can only sprout after a fire. Oh, crazy. So it's like, it's almost like for the tree to keep living, there's a need for some sort of death or something. It's like after a fire, it's when usually all the small manzanita trees starts sprouting. And so it felt kind of appropriate for, for that project because we talk about like volcanic cycles and creation, destruction, life and death. So I use that. I made about 15 sculptures and usually I... I show them in museums and I, I have, has been representing me in Vancouver for the last eight years now. Um, and so I've been selling quite a few through my gallery. I also have like a few of them with me right now as we're talking because I'm at my studio. So they're like right behind me. Very cool. It's, how do you, how does one, I mean, when I, when I take, take a look at all of your NFTs and how much success you've had there, and then you also have this physical real world component how do you balance that how does you how do you wrap your head around that going forward I, that's the, one of the things I, I i wonder about these artists like in some sense it's it, and correct me if i'm wrong here but it, it would be a lot easier to just stick to nfts than oh, yeah, they go sure. through physicals <laughs> no like absolutely no question about that i mean to be honest the last eight years of my career, if I'm really honest with myself, what I really love making is animation. And that's all. That's always going to be the starting point for everything I do. I start with digital sketches. I start with animation. And that's really, I don't know, that's like my, my happy place, I guess, or like my medium of choice. And then trying to survive in the art world, um, I very quickly understood that just making digital animation wasn't going to cut it and that I had to sort of diversify my practice. And I've always enjoyed that. I've always enjoyed like being able to do a lot of things, doing projects in contemporary arts, making prints, making sculptures, but also like collaborating with fashion designers, collaborating with music festivals, like working on installations. I've also done a ton of like underground events in Vancouver where I would co-produce events with uh, music producers and I would make projections in the space. So I've always, I've always loved that. And it's also been like very useful because it's sort of like you diversify your range of activity. It feels like you're not relying on just one thing. Now, since NFTs, like you were talking about, how do I make a balance? I don't make a balance. I'm like diving like full force in NFTs. And that's, that's pretty much all I'm doing now since February. Oh, wow. So what was the first NFT for you to really, what that you produced? And, and how crazy was that experience? Was it the Wild West, like, did you have any idea what you were doing or were you pretty technical enough to know, oh, this is the thing that I should just uh, jump into? No, I really, I was really skeptical at first. I think uh, Super Rare and Foundation contacted me last year. And at first I was like, what is this? Like, this looks like a scam. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. And I, I kept paying attention to it. I think from like October or November, 2020 until like February which is when I, I released my first NFT. I just kept looking at it and I kept seeing like, I was like, mm, this is actually pretty good. And then I kept seeing artists that I really liked jumping on board. And so I don't know, I, I think it was like a slow process for me also because I've been so burnt on like different projects in the past that have been like very promising for digital artists saying like, oh, we're creating this new marketplace. It's going to be great. You guys are going to make lots of money. Your work is going to be valued and appreciated. And 
at the end, it never really quite worked. So I've, I came to NFT like very suspiciously and through baby steps. And then in February, I released my first one on foundation, I believe. It's this work called Alone in the Sea. And it's sort of like this like deep blue wave that's undulating. And there's this little red dot that's floating on the surface of the wave. And from then onward, it's been pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, th- this is really cool to see the kind of your evolution. And, and also you've taken your art in so many different directions, I feel like. One of the things I, I guess one of the styles that I wanted to cover is this kind of retro, almost like the first Mac graphical interface. And I think on your website, you call it uh, Pandora. What was, what was Pandora referencing? What, what is that style? Oh, Pandora is the name of the street I live in in Vancouver. So that was the whole, um, the whole beginning of that whole project. Pandora was, I think it started in 2015. And this, this organization called Opening Times from London invited me to do an online residency. And usually when you're an artist and you do an art residency, you go somewhere and like you go into like an art center or like a studio and you kind of, you kind of work with the tools that they offer you and you stay there for a certain amount of time. And so at the time when they offered me the online residency, I was like, what is an online residency? Right. Like, where does it happen exactly? Yeah. I still don't even know what that means. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so at the time my studio was at my house and so I was like, well, I guess I'm doing a residency at my studio in my house. So I called right. the project Pandora because I live on, on Pandora Street in Vancouver. And then I made like this series of works that were like, some of them are depiction of my studios. Some of them are depiction of my house. Uh, some of them are inspired by like the window shapes of my house. And, and so I kind of used my house as this sort of like, I guess like this, this source of inspiration for manifesting different works. And yeah, it's the first time I kind of explored also like really large scale works. There's like this work in Pandora called Studio Visits 1 and Studio Visit 2. And they're really large works. They're like 4K animation that are this sort of isometric representations of my studio. Oh, uh, wow. You can click in on these. I didn't even know you could click in. On. I was yeah, yeah, the, yeah. You can click in and oh you can... Oh my God, these are huge. Yeah, yeah. They're pretty big. Yeah. And so you can scroll around. And so like the first one, Studio Visit 1, is sort of like this depiction of my studio where there's like all these prints and sculptures, but everything is animated. So it's almost like the sculptures and the prints are like in, in digital form, like they're they're animating and they're flashing. And so it's kind of like a, I guess, like a, a play or a response to like how artists have represented their studios over time in the history of art and like it's like oh like a a painter is gonna paint themselves in their studios with like all their paintings or like a sculptor is gonna make a a self-portrait of them like sculpting and i was like well i'm gonna make a an animation of my studio with all my works in digital form and that that was kind of like the the basis and then i made a, a second a second one i think called garden visits which is kind of like it's kind of like a funny kind of commentary on like Vancouver and just like artists in general, where like the whole studio has been turned into like a weed grow up where like, instead of having art, you just have like these weed plants growing. And I guess I made that like in response to like a couple of things. The first is like, well, when you're an artist, it's like, how do you make ends meet? And then also because in Vancouver, like a lot of people at the time, like relied on, relied on growing we to like make ends meet, not me, but like uh, a lot of my friends did. So I don't know. I kind of wanted to, I guess I was intending like some sort of social commentary through the piece. It was like definitely misinterpreted. Like a lot of people were like, oh my God, you're just like glorifying weed and everything. I was like, actually, I didn't mean that. But, but yeah, it was like interesting to kind of play with like my studio as like this sort of basis for different works because I never really, until then, I never really used elements from like my surroundings into my work. So that was, that was something very new to me and it was kind of exciting. 
This is so cool. We're going to link up Studio Visit 1 and and the second one. One of the things that I I wanted to ask you about this is it is such large scale and it, how did you create this? Like it's <laughs> like did you go manually and just do pixel by pixel? Like like let me take a, a really basic example then we can go into something crazier, but like the chair. The chair mm-hmm. sitting in front of your desk is a very like I wouldn't even call it eight bit style. It's more evolved than that. It's like I feel like it's it's early Mac interface like vibes. How how did you build that? Yeah, I mean it's kind of drawn. It's sort of like manually drawn, and then sometimes I use like a very simple three D model, and I sort of export an image in isometric perspective of it, and then I retouch it and I redraw on top of it. So. Mm-hmm. It's extremely, extremely time consuming. Yeah, I was going to um, say this whole thing. Everything is animated in here. I mean, this looks like it probably took you what three, four, five months. Each of them took me about like three weeks or four weeks because I was just working on it full time. Okay, so it was. But there's something. I mean, I love doing that. It's like this thing is like I, I can't code for the life of me. It's like if you put me in front of like a website and I have to code a page like after like 10 minutes, I'm going to have a headache, but drawing pixels and doing this kind of work, I could do it all day and I would be the happiest person on the planet. So I don't know, like over time I figured out that like this kind of working process, even though it's not necessarily like the most efficient, even though it doesn't necessarily always make sense. Like I could, I could code it or I could do it differently. The way I do it, I thoroughly, enjoy it and I can do it for hours and hours and hours and I would be super happy. So, yeah. On how much of this is you sitting there kind of doing frame by frame animation versus do you, have you refined a process? Like for example, the, on the studio visit one, this background has this like not pulsating blue, but this kind of blue, like uh, what would you call that? What style would you call that? Like the blue striping that's going on in the background. Oh, the Moray pattern. Yeah. Yeah. The, like, yeah. yeah. The Moray pattern. Is that something you did once in a very small format and then replicated over and over again? Or is it something where this entire project was just a series of frames that you had to go in and manually animate? So the, the Moray pattern is actually like a whole part of my practice that I've developed. And if you go on my website, it's called patterns on the homepage. Mm-hmm. And so that body of work is really based on digital Moray animation techniques that I sort of came up with over time. And really what it is, it's two images overlapping on top of each other. And one image is moving or two images are moving and it creates the illusion of Mm. motion and it creates the final animation. So it's actually, it's not done frame by frame. It's usually, I usually use flash, which is called animate now. Uh, And I have a background, I have a foreground, Usually the foreground is transparent or it has like negative space that's transparent. So you can, you can overlap both images and, and that creates the final animation. And it's really, if you look at Moray pattern, there's a kind of like a, a significant history of Moray patterns in, in kinetic art and optical art. Artists would do kind of like the same thing as I'm doing, whereas it would take like two images that it would be like a little bit transparent. They would overlap them and it would create the illusion of a figure or it would just create these geometric shapes. And I basically translated that sort of working process into a, a digital workflow. So yeah, that's the first step. And then there's a lot of, there's a lot of like image post-processing. So for example, when I do one of these animations, I, I export an image sequence and then I will re-import each image on Photoshop and do some modifications and write a script so these modifications are recorded and applied to every single image of the image mm. sequence and then I just re-export it. I see. Very cool. I don't know if that made any sense or not. <laughs> no, it, it does. It's, okay. It sounds like it's a, a process that a process that is kind of uniquely yours. Like you've you must have spent a lot of time kind of honing this in. Yeah. You know it's funny when I was in art school I was looking at painters and I was like so jealous of them because like they arrive at their studio, they have their paintbrush, they have their like tubes of paint, they have their canvases and they're just kind of like doing their own cooking or like recipes. And they just, they just do their own thing and they, they kind of know 
what they're doing, but they're the only ones who know what they're doing. And I was looking at them. I was like, I, I really want to do something like that. Not painting, but like, I want to, I want to find my shtick. Like I want to find the thing that I can do that I really enjoy doing that I can do for hours and hours. And that's going to be like very unique to my practice, I guess. So I always, I don't know, I, I kind of develop my practice consciously or unconsciously towards that. That makes, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, it, clearly I think you've, you've found it. I, I'm curious about a couple of the others, the home studies. So I've, I've told you this on, on discord, some of my favorite, just so simple, but beautiful. And what a fantastic thing to actually have up in your own home. Like I just can't wait to get a digital frame and put mine up on, on the wall. Walk us through that one. So home studies, I think I started this whole body of work around 2010. And we talked a little bit about 3D modeling on Discord the other day. And so when I discovered 3D modeling, I discovered it because I was doing this like gigs for different like architectural firms. And one thing that really stuck with me was how, how 3D models became like really important in like the promotion of architecture today and like how to sell architectures because most, most new condominium complex and most new like buildings are sold and promoted to clients through 3D renders. And that really stuck with me. I was like, oh, that's really interesting how like people just like buy things for, for millions of dollars. Uh, based on just a rendering. So I kind of started experimenting with um, very simple 3D modeling programs. Um, kind of worked a lot with SketchUp because the learning curve was really fast. And for what I was doing, it was really enough. I didn't really need more features. And yeah, I started developing this series of architectures that are more like, I guess I call them studies because that's what they are. They're just studies. They're like very simple, like simplified versions of architecture where you just have more like the overall shape and features of an architecture. And then this architecture is usually presented as rotating endlessly, almost kind of like an item in a video game, like mm -hmm. a, a possession, like a, I don't know, like a potion or something. Oh my gosh. I think you're nailing why it's resonating with me. Cause yeah, it, I remember playing those old games and you like collect something. It's like ling and like it floats in the air and then rotates. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I don't know, like there's something about like architecture being like these sort of items like that, like these desirable items that really resonated with me. And so I kind of, I kind of wanted to treat architecture as almost like this sort of like these items with like different properties. And based on like the background I would set up, then it would create a state like the, the, the one you collected, it looks like it's at, it's like, daytime and then like some other works on that series look like they're at like nighttime or at sunset or at sunrise and so it looks like these houses that are floating that you don't you don't really know where they are they're just kind of like floating in limbo but there's something kind of desirable about them because you sort of want to explore them i don't know that, that's kind of what i was trying to infuse in the work mm -hmm. yeah it's 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 wonderful stuff. They're really, really cool because they feel so, so simple, but yet you can tell it's, it's very confusing when you look at it and like, how was this created? Because it's like, in some sense, you're like, well, if it was 3D, it would be way more complex and, and, and just like rendered feeling. You know what I mean? Right. And they're like, well, if it was hand drawn, there's no way he could rotate it like this and, and hand and do this by hand. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it's, it's a very confusing piece to look at, but, but it's so simple that it's just, yeah, I, I, I think you hit it out of the park with this one. Really, really. Well Thank done. you. Thanks so much. Yeah. I think like the pixel patterns also like create like a sort of trick because when you first see the animation, it looks like there's like these different colors. And then when you look at it upon second inspection, you realize that it's more like just these pixel patterns, almost like black and white. And then there's a gradient behind. So that's, that's something that's really fascinating about early computer graphics from the eighties is that, you know, image with like a lot of visual information were translated into images with just like two colors. And mm -hmm. so. With two colors, you have to create like all these sort of visual artifacts, these pixelated patterns that the image a lot of texture and a lot of character. And that's really what I love exploring is how these textures and how these, these sort of patterns can just create like a really unique and compelling aesthetic experience.
that makes a ton of sense given that you are so good at patterns and it now i can see that that is kind of the uniqueness of a lot of this is like the patterns that you come up with that you animate they are what what really make this stuff pop in a very subtle way but but a very interesting way mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's it's cool stuff like well i'll give you another example my favorite piece of yours is this poster the indexed avenue skylight which has this kind of like animating pattern texture that's going down the front of it and it's got a frog all right yeah that that is so cool what 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 was the inspiration behind this so the whole project is inspired by my involvement in underground venues in vancouver so like from 2000 2012 till 2018 i've been co-producing a lot of events in vancouver in underground venues and i was doing projections for these events so the whole project in Dex Avenue and Skylight is it's sort of like a way to look back at this this like six or eight years that I've been doing this. And I really it, it represents like a really big part of my life. So I really wanted to like make a project around it. And that particular work you're describing called Poster, um, the the original inspiration is this very old advertising for um nerve pills i think it's by carters it's called carters little nerve pills so it was like these pills in at the end of the 19th century or the beginning of the 20th century that were uh sold to help people with nervousness and just basically like when your your stomach was bothered because you're too nervous and the the actual advertising of of the pill is that frog with oh, a sort I of plants and it has like this really weird like Alice in Wonderland vibe but it's also like really creepy it's super uh, creepy it's got a baby yeah. now with a frog like standing up above the baby yeah exactly yeah. this is super creepy yeah it's super creepy and so uh, it's really cryptic but I guess like one of the things I wanted to evoke with sort of underground venues is like the nervousness of people and especially of DJs because when they have to like play their DJ set, they always really, really get nervous. And so like one of the producers that I was working with at the time was super nervous when it was her time to DJ and her favorite animal was the frog. She was always like put frogs everywhere. So I guess that poster is sort of like a a sort of a response or like an evocation of that. And Usually when that work is shown, I tell the story because otherwise you look at the work and you're like, what does this mean? Like, where is this going? I don't understand. And the work is kind of like a way for me to just talk about, talk about my experiences in the spaces and the people I've worked with and the sort of like culture and communities that were surrounding those, those venues and those events. What would you describe this design style as? Like it, it, it does feel like it could be a trading card almost in some sense. It feels like it could be a Dungeons and Dragons kind of object. Totally, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has like this sort of trading card or like monster, might and magic sort of vibe for sure. Yeah. Very cool. How do you approach what, you have so many interesting things here that I'm looking through your portfolio and through your archives. And how do you decide as an artist which ones to release, which ones to hold back, the cadence in which you release new things. Do you consider that as you're kind of dro- doing doing new drops? I mean, some artists you'll meet and they're doing a weekly drop. Well, they'll drop 10 new items every week. And other mm-hmm. artists are once, you know, X copy does something every four months or something. It's, right. What? How do you figure out your own pacing? I mean, it's a working process, to be honest. Like, I, I sometimes I try to... Like when I have a series that is already finished, trying to say, okay, well, maybe I can release one a week for the next four weeks. And then it really depends on the, on the project. I guess as I, as I move into the NFT space and as I sort of like discover that culture and I grow into that space, I feel like some works make more sense than others. And I can't really quite pinpoint why or how, but sometimes I come up with a plan and I have this series of works and I'm like, oh yeah, they're going to be great as NFTs. And then upon second inspection, I'm like, well, actually, maybe they don't make that much sense. Maybe I should do something else. And I try to 
I don't know. It's like a way for, for me to keep it exciting where I don't really have like a, I don't have a roadmap <laughs> to basically, I don't really have like a, a, a very exact idea of what I want. Like some of the works, including like the ones we've talked about, I don't want to release them yet. I, I will release them later. Some of the works have been released already, but I, I try to make new works that also is created in response to my experiences of the NFT space, like in response to, you know, my new friends, the artists I've met, the collectors I've met, all the conversations we have every week because there's like so much that's been talked about every week. And, and yeah, and just like my personal experience of that space, of what it has brought to my life, like the sort of the perspectives it brings, the art I see, because I see a lot of amazing art that kind of influences me and inspires me. So yeah, there's no... Long story short, there's not a very specific, precise plan for what's to come. Yeah, this is, I, I've, I've really think that what you've done in terms of like your releases, for me, it always seemed like it was very, very thought out. Like you, you seem to have these different pieces that you release on different platforms. Is that true? Like, do you think of different platforms as different avenues create from a creative standpoint, like do you release different types of NFTs on Hin versus Foundation versus Super Rare? How do you think about those platforms? Oh, definitely. Yeah, like I, I, I see each platform as like its own space in a way. I'm super like visual in terms of how I approach my work on a screen. So when I go on Foundation, when I go on Super Rare, when I go on Hicket Nunk, which are pretty much like the only three platform I, I release works on. Uh, just the whole experience, the whole lay, layout, the whole like UX, UI of, of the platform is going to sort of trigger some like different sort of responses. And mm. I'm like, well, this work will look good on, on this interface or this environment. This work will look good on that. And also it's in response to like maybe like some of my experiences with the communities around this these platforms. And yeah, I mean, there's also like some limitations sometimes because working with GIFs and working with like hard edge pixel patterns, when you convert your work to like video formats, you lose a lot of quality. So I also, I, I also have some work that I kind of, I make like a lot of different versions of one work and I look what version seems to look the best and on which platform. And then I kind of base it upon that. There's a, I guess like the, the thing I should say is that there's a lot of there's a lot of experimentation and a lot of trial and error before I release one work on a specific platform. I just kind of like try it out. Mm. I try to like see a preview. I try to see how it looks on that platform versus that one. And so that's how I kind of make my decision. I would imagine that as you're creating these different works, they vary in terms of file size, obviously, like the more sophisticated, the higher pixel count, longer duration in terms of whether it be an actual video or an animated uh, GIF, what is it? What does the landscape look like in terms of your options there? Like when you export a GIF, is there a maximum file size issue that you run into where then you have to convert it to video? And do different platforms support larger file types than others? I guess yes and no. I, I've always enjoyed working with limitations. When I started making my work as animated GIFs, I, I realized that. I was going to be limited to like 256 colors, no matter what. I was going to be limited to file size that are downloadable easily and fast. Because, you know, when I started making that work in like 2010, 2012, not all internet connections were that great. So usually I try to take that in consideration and try to keep file size to like like five or 10 megabytes. So the workloads fast. Um, oh, wow. And... Yeah, I've always enjoyed working with those limitations to see what I can get out of these limitations. It's almost like a, a bit of like a technical challenge uh, on my end. And now moving into the NFT space, this whole sort of like negotiation around like file size and limitation gets re-evaluated because uh, this whole space has like different sorts of limitations that are really like specific to the space. I mean... Most platforms have like a 50 megabyte size limit, but it's like if you make like a, a GIF that's 50 megabytes, usually it's going to be like pretty slow. It's going to take a while to load. So 
I don't know. I try to take these things in consideration. So like the experience of the work in the end is like really like seamless and, and enjoyable. Um, but I mean, gifts are not like a really, they're like a pretty light format. So obviously if you like, if you make like a one minute long gift, that's not going to be light and that's probably going to crash your, your browser. Uh, but so if I'm, if I really want to make a work that's like one minute long or two minute long, then I will definitely go towards like a video exportation or like a different format than GIF. Mm. But I've always really enjoyed GIF as like this sort of like almost like little time capsules, you know, yeah. like this like little seamless loop where it feels like temporality is kind of different. It's like this thing that has like no beginning or end. And it's, it's almost like an image that comes to life. That's like, has like this sort of imbued with life, but there's not, the temporality is sort of like non-existent. It's kind of like floating in midair and it doesn't really have like this notion of like, this is the beginning, this is the end, at least for my work. I think like a lot of people may give that have like more like a narrative dimension or like a beginning, a beginning and an end or like more figurative elements that kind of like tell a story. But for me, what I find really exciting is like, yeah, like working on like this rotating object, this rotating architectures, this rotating landscape that just feel like you're you're looking at something that deploys itself in front of you and, and time isn't really part of that experience. It's more like you decide how much time you want to put into that experience. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know about those those GIF limitations. They crash your browser. Is that due to the size of the GIF or is it, what happens there? It would it would seem like a modern day processor should be able to handle an image format that was created in like the early nineties or whatever. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it wouldn't crash most browsers, but I think if your computer is pretty weak or pretty old, it would crash it. So I've always been a bit like overkill when it comes to that, and I've always tried to like make works that I would feel would like run smoothly on most machines even if like the machine is 10 year old and like use like a really crappy web browser uh but like a 15 megabyte gift probably runs fine on like 80 percent of like computers out there but like i don't know i I just get worried about the 20 percent of the computers are not going to be able to run it so i try to make something that like would potentially like reach like a 95 percent or like a 98 percent ratio where like most of the time it runs smoothly yeah that makes sense. When you look at these different platforms, we mentioned you kind of look at aesthetically how a piece would fit into the other pieces or that that particular platform. Hin is such a, a wild beast in in the, in the nature of like yeah. scrappiness, both in terms of it just the availability of the website being online and a, a whole slew of other things, but. It is such a fun, it almost has like an underground kind of vibe. Like you'd mentioned totally. underground yeah. kind of like venues that you participated in back in the day. Do you get that? Yeah. Do, so you get that sense as well. And then do you see that as kind of like the indie anti-corporate platform? I mean, I love Hen. Like I think it definitely is. Uh, it's definitely a platform I really, really enjoy. Why, why do you love its- it? I'm curious. I think a lot, I, a lot of people say don't like how it's like the interface is bad, or they say. But I'd love right. to hear your story. What, what what attracts you to it? I mean, the interface is bad. I mean, I can't deny <laughs> that it's like, it is terrible. And it's like, but what's really refreshing about it is that like you look at other NFT platform and like the the interface is like super polished and very like here we're gonna we're gonna take you on this like very comfortable journey and like here's the big buttons that you're supposed to click on. And then you go on hand and there's like none of that. It's like bare bones. Right. It's, it's like really rugged. And I, I sort of love that because I don't know, it's really just about the art. It's not about like the interface of the platform. It's not about like shiny, pretty buttons. It's not about like a really cool user experience. It's about the art. And I love that. And I think I love the community around hand because the community around hand is amazing. I mean, I, I, when I, when I started posting my first minting, my first works on hand, so many people helped me. Like so many artists were like, do you need a hand? Like, can I, can I walk you through that? Like, do you, do you need help? Or like here, here's a free edition of this. Here's a free edition of that. So to me, it's like a whole where like the community itself and like 
the platform are are creating this sort of ecosystem that's really, really welcoming and really built around like ideas of mutual support and ideas of like camaraderie. And I, yeah, I just really love that experience because to be honest, after like 10 years in the art world, I, I didn't think that this experience could, could happen because mm. in the art world, I mean, I love artists and I love art and I love like going to see shows in museum, but there's so very little opportunities that everybody tends to like keep to themselves. And it's like, even if you want to be nice and friendly and helpful to other people, you realize at the end of the day that like most people are not going to do the same thing for you. And so that you should keep like your opportunities and your energy to yourself. And then like you arrive on a platform like Hen and like everybody's helpful. Well, not everybody, but like a vast majority of people are like super helpful, super welcoming, super friendly. And, and yeah, I mean, that to me is like also like a huge thing and a huge part of my experience of the platform. Yeah. That's, is it because there's limited real estate in the physical world? Like I, I, is it like, I can imagine like a gallery, right? Like there's only Mm -hmm. so much wall space. There's only, it, it seems like more of a, let's fight to, to get in here and maintain our position in here and, and be top of mind for the curators or is, is it that kind of vibe versus when I think about crypto, one of the things that I'm attracted to part of the reason why I do this show too, honestly, is like, I, I think of it as like this expansive pie. Like there's room for everyone here yeah, in this world. Totally. No. And that's, that's the beauty of it. It's like everybody gets a piece of the pie and that makes it so much better. Yeah. Um, I mean, when it comes to the art world, I, I think it's like a, a sort of like a systemic issue and it's not really like, I wouldn't say like it's the actor's fault. I, I, I don't think it's like the artist's fault or like the creator's fault or like the, the museum director's fault. It's just like the system and the structure doesn't have enough opportunities. There's yeah. not enough opportunities for everybody. There's probably enough money, but like the way it's redistributed is really shitty. So at the end of the day, I mean, I have like so many artist friends who are just as talented as me, who are just as great as me, who are just as nice people as me. And they feel miserable in the art world. They feel miserable because they don't, they don't get opportunities and they feel like they're like, they're failing because they're not getting these opportunities. And to me, it's not their fault. It's just that like the system doesn't offer enough opportunities for artists. And so when you arrive in the NFT space as an artist, especially as a digital artist, where like in contemporary art, when you make digital arts, everybody's like, you didn't pick the right field, get ready. Um, <laughs> so like when you arrive in <laughs> NFT, you're like, what the hell? Like, what is this? It's like, people are friendly. There's tons of opportunities. People don't keep everything to themselves. Like they're like, you know, offering their time and energy. And yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's like a really also like a really big thing that I'm so, why I'm so into NFTs is like the, like the mutual support, the wealth redistribution, like trying to include folks and, and people that have been like systematically like excluded from opportunities in like the history of art and the history of society and seeing that actually happen in NFT space is just, I don't know. It just gives me so much more energy and drive to keep like investing myself into that space because, and it's like, I, I, I don't want to sound like pretentious and I'm not saying it at all that like that, but like I, I've been able to help so many artists in like the light, the last eight months in NFTs, I've been able to help so many people way more than I've been able to help in like 10 years of career in contemporary arts. Wow. And, and that's just because there's so many opportunities in NFTs and because it's the culture of the space. Because when I entered the space, so many people helped me. So many people were like, here, this is how you do that. Here's this is how you should do this. Like collectors were advising me. We're like, you should release works like, once a week, like don't release too many works. Like this is how you should like look at like your price points and things like that. Like I got so much help that I was like, well, if I don't give back, I'm really like the worst jerk on the planet. Like I need to perpetuate that culture of, of support because that's, that's also to me like a really big revolution, like from like an artist perspective, because in contemporary art, I've never seen that. It's like you see pockets of that when people gather into collectives and to try to like 
create something that's like really insular, but like on a whole like systemic level like that, I've, n- I've never seen it before. Yeah. I agree. This is like, this is what is so exciting. And I would talk about just not being able to sleep and getting up in the morning and really just wanting to jump back in and see, say good morning to everyone. <laughs> you know, yeah. And just like, I'm like, this is cool. I get this like bubbly excitement feeling in my gut that is just like I haven't had since Web 2 first started. So it's it's pretty awesome. I'm I'm curious before we wrap here a couple last questions for you. One and this is a really hard one and I always ask it to people and feel free to well let me let me bound it by number then. Who are uh, another two maybe three artists in this space that are up and coming that you respect that that you would like to draw some attention to? Are there are there other artists that that you look to and you're like wow, they're doing really cool stuff? I mean, there's lots of them. I know so it's so hard to it's, answer. It's it? hard to be like, cause like I, I have a list of 20, like, or 30. Uh, I mean, there's definitely like a few shout outs that I want to give, like, especially to like Xshells and Pixel Full because it's been amazing. I think they're like amazing and talented artists, but they're also like amazing human beings and they've been helping me so much. And we've developed friendships that are like, really, really meaningful to me. And then like in terms of like up and coming artists, I think like, you know, they go by Occulted on uh, on Twitter. They're amazing. They're making like really, really cool 3D work. And they just recently created this project called Magma on Foundation with like tons of artists from Brazil. And there's like lots of experimental work, lots of really cool things. Cool. Another artist that I really love is Linda Dunia. She's based in Dakar and she also did a really cool curation on foundation called Cyberbats. And it's a lot of artists from the African continent. And there's. When you, you say know, curation, what do you mean by that? It's like this like world feature on foundation where artists can basically create like a, a page on foundation with different artists. Uh, so it's sort of like. It's called World, and I, I call it like curated selection. I think like everybody can sort of decide what word they want to use applies best to 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 these sort of initiatives. What I think is cool is that some you know some artists that are acting as community leaders in in the NFT space have are basically given the opportunity to like push the work of different artists and and also group these works together to sort of like establish a dialogue between all of these artist practices. So Ikero did that with this project called Magma and Linda Dunia did that with this project called Cyberbat. And I think they're really, they're really like super exciting projects. And then I'll have to give like some shout outs to some like local artists who are really, really cool too, who are based in Vancouver. There's Kristen Roos who makes like amazing, amazing works with like old, Amiga and like Apple Macintosh, like he does works with like 25 year old computers or 30 year old computer. They're absolutely amazing. There's also yeah, I've seen I've seen Kristen Roos. Some of the the Amiga stuff is beautiful, which yeah. I can I can relate to because I I first was trained on Amiga. So that's very cool. Yeah, like his work is amazing. And there's also Fizz Pop and Alex Gibson, who are two other artists from Vancouver, who I just want to shout out because. They're amazing. Like Fist Pop has like this really amazing practice where he they make these gigantic images that are like, I don't know, like 10,000 pixels by 10,000 pixels. So like when you see them on on the NFT platform, make sure you check like the IPFS link because like when you see them in real size, they're like, it's like a whole world. It's like, it's like, I don't know. I hope they don't mind that comparison, but it's like, it's like almost exploring like a video game map where there's like so many details everywhere and you can just like kind of scroll through the image. Yeah. I would definitely, uh, highly recommend checking out their work. Fantastic. And then last question, what's next for you? Well, what's next for me? I'm releasing a new work on show you next week normally. And that's a, Pretty, pretty big work. It's like a work I've been working off and on for the last six months. It probably took me like two months full time to create. It's called After. And it's a it's a four minute long traveling through a sort of post-apocalyptic landscape. I've made this work in collaboration with a 
a music producer from Vancouver who's based in Berlin called LNS. And yeah, that's the thing that's probably like my biggest work today that I'm going to release as an NFT. So I'm pretty excited about that. Do you know which platform you'll be releasing it on? That will be released on a new platform called Show You. Oh, that is Show You. Oh, I haven't used Show You. That's interesting. Yeah, it's not out yet. It's like it's about to be launched, I think, October 15. Yeah. And so that'll be like an interesting experience. Very cool. Awesome. Well, Nicholas, thank you so much for being on the show. And I will, of course, link up your Twitter. And on your Twitter page, you have links to all of your other stuff. And so we'll make sure to push people there as well. But this has been a, a ton of fun to, to chat about all this. And I hope when you have some other big projects to talk about, you'll come, come back and tell us more. For sure. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, it's been such a pleasure and such a, a privilege to be able to talk with you. Thank you so much, Kevin. All right, that is it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you would like to help us out, head on over to proof.xyz and click on the reviews button at the very top and leave us a five-star review. Thanks so much. Take care.